Acts chapter 17, a passage where the grace of God was at work amongst uh, intellectuals, sometimes the most hardened group to reach with the gospel. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 22. Hear God's word. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for I was passing through And considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things." And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, Since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray that as we uh, dig into it, that you would anoint uh, my uh, feeble lips, that you would take the weakness of man, and that, Father, you would accomplish your good and perfect purposes. Sanctify this, your people, encourage them, build them up, I pray in the most holy faith, and may you receive our responses to your word, our continued worship uh, through the merits of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> When I was younger, uh, evangelism explosion was used very effectively in uh, California because most of the people at that time shared a um, somewhat of a common, the basics of the Christian worldview. They still had a conception of a Christian God. Uh, They still, to some degree, understood sin, uh, that they were created, judgment, hell, heaven, things like that. But Coral Ridge Ministries, when they began engaging in beach evangelism, found that this just was not working. These people had no conception of uh, God. If they had a a belief in God, it was kind of a finite pagan view of God. They had never read the Bible. They had uh, no uh, conception of sin, such as the Bible speaks of sin or of judgment or of hell, other things that we take for granted. And so Coral Ridge Ministries really beefed up their evangelism explosion program. In fact, they called it something entirely different. And the three areas they really had to beef it up on was creation, the nature of God, and the law. And it it made a huge difference in the impact they were having amongst uh, those pagans. Well, in the same way, Paul, when he was preaching in the synagogue, could assume a lot because they shared a common worldview. Even with the the God-fearers, they'd already been so instructed in Judaism, there was a lot that they shared uh, in common. But when he's speaking to the pagans, they've got a totally different worldview, totally different conception of God, of truth, of reality. And so I think this passage tells us a lot of how we can impact a post-Christian nation that we live in. And this sermon is a little bit tougher (laughs) than... Uh, the sermons we've done in the last uh, several months. But put your thinking caps on because I think you'll find this to be very, very uh, helpful stuff. How do we communicate to a post-Christian culture? This is a raging debate in evangelical circles and very few evangelicals are following Paul's pattern. I'm not going to go into all of the differing Uh, views on this, but in Omaha you'll find people who use the uh, old Willow Creek model, the new Willow Creek model, which is sort of emergent 
uh, kind. There are people who ditch doctrine thinking this is irrelevant. Nobody's going to be interested in doctrine. Uh, you'll find people who have ditched the church as being passe. They say nobody's going to come into the doors of a church. In fact, they don't even meet as a church. They just have informal relationships and networks with unbelievers. They think this is going to be more effective in impacting them. And then there are others who are seeking to reach uh, unbelievers through service, uh, through affirmative action, uh, poverty relief, and other things like that. And actually, the last group that I'm thinking of, I really wouldn't want to criticize. They're doing some great stuff. But the pastors are struggling with how do you communicate to a culture that doesn't want to be communicated to. Okay, That's the issue that they're trying to... to, to they don't want to be reached. And even within reform circles, there are differing approaches to apologetics. I know uh, good people who emphasize an experientialist apologetic, and they'll appeal to Acts chapter 17, and they'll say, I want you to notice that Paul knows his God personally. He can speak to the truth of Christianity because he's experienced the reality of Christianity, and that is very true. I know others who hold to a modified rationalist approach, and they can demonstrate that Paul used incisive logic to just tear apart the, the, the Greek worldview. And I think they're correct as well. Others hold to an evidentialist perspective. And they say that Jesus appeals to the evidence of the uh, resurrection of Christ. Others are revelationalists. And they'll say, look, Paul's been preaching for the last several days from the Bible. And this can't be taken out of isolation from what we were looking at last week. It's God's revelation that had such a powerful work in the lives of God's people. And that is correct as well. I know one biblical uh, pragmatist who says, what Paul is doing here is that Paul is seeking to demonstrate that the Greek worldview simply does not work pointing to the problems that they're experiencing, but that the Christian worldview does indeed work. And uh, all of these systems of apologetics do have some things to contribute because I'm a presuppositionalist. I'm going to approach this uh, passage with some bias. Uh, but um, I do want to encourage you to, to realize, don't just write off some of these other Reformed approaches. There's a lot of great stuff that you can learn from them. But it would take me all day to preach this if I were to give you every perspective on every phrase that's in here. I'll give you some hinters throughout. Um, but I just want to give you a heads up that um, I think there is a lot you can learn from them. Now, I think presuppositionalism encompasses it all. But the main error I want to address, and some of the other approaches to apologetics resist this as well, is that we must not approach apologetics on neutral ground. As if it's okay to just assume that God does not exist for the sake of the argument and say, okay, let's assume God does not exist. We're going to take these godless facts, these uninterpreted facts, and over time, hopefully move people to a position where they're going to say, okay, there is a probability that God does exist. This is the approach that Buswell took, and uh, a good man, but I think faulty in his thinking on this. He thought that all people are born with a blank slate, they don't have any knowledge of God, no knowledge of the law imprinted on their hearts. And so when they believe in God, it's because of the evidence and the evidence alone. They've looked at the facts and it's led them to the conclusion. Now, there are other biblical uh, evidentialists like Sproul and others who would disagree with that as well. But uh, a number of these people um, would say that Paul was using common ground of Greek philosophy, which supposedly he agreed with, in order to win friendships with the philosopher, here's how one commentator put it. Paul shows a clear appreciation of the elements of truth contained in their philosophy, unquote. Now, I disagree with that very strongly, and you'll see why in a bit. Uh, some of these uh, scholars insist Paul did not use the Bible. And the reason he didn't use the Bible, that would totally alienate these people. They don't believe in the Bible. You've got to start on their ground and demonstrate the truth of Christianity only from their presuppositions. Uh, another author put it this way, Paul did not come out fighting. He was far too polished a soul winner to begin by insulting his audience. And I don't think that that is true. McGregor Wright, I think, has demonstrated that Paul could not have been more confrontational uh, in this discourse with the Athenian philosophers, contrary to what was 
uh, uh, said by some, he has been using the Scriptures for several days as he is preaching. Verse 18, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And verse 17, day after day he's doing that. Earlier it speaks of the Scriptures. And it's because they're puzzled by this biblical message that they have been hearing that they're taking him for examination to the Areopagus to figure out what's going on here. Is this guy somebody we even want to have around? And we've only got the smallest portion of what Paul has been teaching. But let's just assume for the sake of argument, this is everything that he said. Even if this sermon, which is only two minutes long, pretty short sermon, right? Even if this sermon is all that Paul said, he is so clearly pointing to the doctrines of the Old Testament. And uh, I'll, I'll demonstrate that in a bit. But anyway, McGregor points out that an amazingly short space he trashes all of the Greek resistance to the gospel. Let me read you his summary of this whole chapter, which I think is the best summary that I have read. He says, In the course of moving from God's nature to the status of the creation and so on to the human dilemma, Paul contradicts at least two dozen popular Hellenistic religious and philosophical opinions. Greek notions are challenged in the areas of existence, ontology, knowledge, which is epistemology, moral action, ethics, and also with respect to the purpose of it all, teleology. The entire structure of the Greco-Roman world view is meticulously subverted and a coherent substitute is offered in its place. There is no way to make these two theoriori or visions of reality compatible. To accept the one is necessarily to abandon the other. The two systems have different sources. One is divine and the other demonic. With incompatible presuppositions and conflicting methodologies, they disagree about what the facts are. They lead to different practical lifestyles and finally to different expressions of worship. I think that's a beautiful summary of what's going on uh, in this chapter. Uh, there's no way I think I can do justice to Paul's um, sermon in this sermon. But in broad strokes, here's what I think is going on. Uh, point number one, Paul is giving his presuppositions as they were revealed in the Old Testament, and I think he's very clear in doing so, and we looked at that some last week, and he knows that these presuppositions are going to be rejected by these unbelievers. And so what he does then is he takes their presuppositions and he says, you are utterly inconsistent in rejecting the gospel. He's saying if you reject the gospel based on your presuppositions alone, you cannot have any consistency. And so he's arguing presuppositionally. And if you want an outstanding analysis of presuppositional methodology of Paul, uh, write down this uh, book, uh, Greg Bonson's book, Always Ready, Directions for Defending the Faith. If you look at the appendix in there, he goes through Acts 17 and shows the methodology of Paul. I think it's uh, just an incredibly great a treatment, and I'm not even planning to duplicate what he gave. I'm just going to let you study point one for yourself by reading that out of that book. But I wanted to give you at least some hinters of what was happening. So enough by way of introduction. I do encourage you, make apologetics core curriculum for your kids. That, that's something you really need to have them studying. Point number two. Right off the bat, Paul begins to show the utter bankruptcy of Greek philosophy. Now, he's being nice but these are fighting words. Okay, verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And actually, the Stoics and the Epicureans that we looked at last week uh, were doing all that they could to stop the Athenians from being what this Greek word for very religious uh, describes. It's the Greek word, daisy diamonesterus. It's uh, one of the longest Greek words uh, in the New Testament. It's made up of two words, daisy, which means very fearful of, and daimon, which means demon or god. Uh, usually it's translated as, as a demon. And uh, interestingly, uh, daisy diamonesterus was one of the buzzwords used by the Epicureans. Uh, they used that word to insult the superstitious fear of demons that many of the Athenians uh, had out there. Uh, a Greek dictionary gives us the literal definition, very fearful of demons, and that made them very religious. Why? Because they're trying to appease the demons, so very religious. That's a, a, an okay translation. Uh, some others translate it, 
this way, overmuch given to fear of the gods, another Bible, too superstitious, another given up to demon worship, but fear of demons is at the root of this. So what Paul's doing is he's just observing a fact that everybody agrees with. You guys in Athens are really fearful of demons. Just everybody observes this. Uh, they know it. And I think the Stoics and the Epicureans would have been delighted with this first phrase that Paul comes out with because they've been saying exactly the same thing using this word that people are far too uh, fearful of demons. Why do they have these 30,000 public altars and idols throughout the city, strewn throughout the seats? It's because these Greeks are scared to death of offending these gods. And the Epicureans are saying, don't worry about it. These gods are so distant, so far removed from your life, they're not going to have any impact on you. You don't need to be fearful of these demons. And so what Paul is doing is he is pitting one group of philosophers in the Areopagus against another group who says, no, we need to be involved in the worship of, of these idols. Verse 23, he's pointing right now to one of the most controversial spots in the Areopagus. He's starting off pretty controversial. Verse 23, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. Now he's not letting the Epicureans and the Stoics off the hook here. They dare not stop worshiping these gods. If they do, the same thing might happen to them as happened to Socrates when he opposed the idolatry. He died over it. And uh, so they're thinking, well, we'll, we'll go along with the, the flow here. We don't want to get into so uh, trouble like Socrates did. And so whereas the other Athenians feared the demons, these Athenians fear public opinion. And so their opposition was more underhanded. They allegorized the gods and said that they were worshiping them for aesthetic pleasure. You know, there's a certain aesthetic beauty in worshiping these gods, so we'll go ahead and do that. And so Paul is already, in one sentence, creating some great tension within this crowd. He agrees with some of them that the idolatry is Daisy Diamonesterus. It's very superstitious. It's very fearful of demons. But then he goes on to say to these Stoics and these Epicureans, but you're doing it. What in the world are you guys doing? Worshiping these idols. He's putting the finger on them as well. And Paul would have been right. The Stoics and Epicureans, they have been opposing idolatry, uh, and yet they continue to worship because perhaps they fear what people will think of them. Perhaps they fear that they will have the fate of Socrates. Now, they're well-admired philosophers, but they do not have a leg to stand on in opposing Paul, so they keep quiet. They say, let him talk. He'll, he'll get enough rope out there. Well, he'll hang himself. We'll see what kind of a hole he digs for himself. Verse 23 says... Um, for as I was passing through, considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, this is yet another sore spot uh, for the Stoics because this altar came as a result of one of their Stoic philosophers, Epimenides. Uh, the story goes that a plague hit Athens around 550 B.C., and they, they sacrificed sacrifices to all the gods that they could think of, and the plague was still killing off people like flies. They applied medicine. They didn't know what to do. So they finally called Epimenides to get his wisdom on this. He was a philosopher-poet. Now, you've got to understand, in Greek culture, poets are sort of like what we would think of as prophets. They saw the poets as being inspired by the muses, but... Epimenides, he was very revered because they thought he was directly inspired by Zeus himself. So anyway, they call Epimenides in and say, what do we do? Uh, some god is really angry with us. And he said, well, take some white and black sheep, put them in the Areopagus here, right where Paul is standing. And as they wander throughout the city, any place where one of those sheep lies down, build an altar and sacrifice the sheep on it and put it on, on that altar to the unknown god. Okay. So, they, you know, they, they do that, and that's kind of the background. And there's three ancient authors who indicate that there were a number of these altars to the unknown God in that city. Now, what Paul is doing here is very clever. He's showing the utter inconsistency of these philosophers. They claimed to uh, oppose superstition, and yet they are practicing superstition. They claim to be wise, and yet they admit they don't know the God who... Uh, you know, was over all of their gods. None of their gods could stop the plague that this God was bringing. Uh, they can't attack Paul for opposing idolatry because they want to oppose idolatry themselves. 
nor can they disagree with him about his God because he knows something that they don't know. Paul then goes on to say, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And let's take just the first phrase. Therefore, the one whom you worship. Paul is getting these philosophers into a corner. They're most revered, they're most respected uh, a supposedly inspired prophet was the one who set up these altars and he didn't even know the name of this God that's you know, taking away uh, this plague. It wasn't Zeus, it wasn't Athena because they don't know the name of this God. They know these, they've sacrificed to Zeus, he hasn't helped them at all. Uh, no, this is a God who is totally outside the realm of Greek knowledge and yet they worship him. Now they're getting on his case for worshiping a God that they don't have, right? So in effect he is saying... How can you oppose me worshiping a foreign god? You worship a foreign god who is outside the, the scope of, of your system. They've already worshipped him. They're admitting to be ignorant about the most important god of all. But because they worship him and because they admire Epimenides, they have a harder time getting on Paul's case. So Paul gets to his first punchline. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Him I proclaim to you. Now, there are some scholars based on the two quotes in verse 28 that Paul's going to give from pagan Greek writings. They say Paul's identifying Zeus with Jehovah, and he's trying to appeal, you know, just on their common ground. But it's quite clear that the Paul that, I mean, the God that Paul is preaching about, they don't know. It's not Zeus because they had sacrificed to Zeus and he could not stop whatever plague this unknown God uh, was bringing. And to me, it's just amazing that Christians would even try to compare the two. Um, Zeus is an immoral God. It's blasphemy to in any way identify Jehovah with him. So what has Paul done so far? In verse 22, Paul has identified something that the Epicureans and the Stoics think is very distasteful about Athens, and Paul agrees with him. Yes, this is very distasteful, but he's not getting in trouble because this is a respectable disagreement amongst these philosophers. There's two schools that are opposed to that, right? Uh, so it may upset some philosophers, but he's still on safe ground. In verse 23, he shows that the Epicureans and the Stoics themselves have not solved this problem because they are engaging in this uh, Daisy Diamonestrus. Nor do they have the answer because they don't know the God who is above all Greek gods. And yet in bringing up this altar, Paul is making a theological statement that is absolutely amazing. The God he represents is above all gods. No God can control the God whom I'm talking about. And the story of Epimenides would have proved that. There's no way they could stop the plague this God had brought. And so Paul's now going to proceed to describe in great detail the Christian God whom the Greeks do not know and show how awesome he is. But first of all, what he does is he makes clear they need to listen to him because he is the representative of this God. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And the word for proclaim indicates Paul is a representative commissioned by this God. He speaks for this God. Now, this is totally outside the realm of at least Stoic thought because their God doesn't speak. There were some other uh, philosophers, you know, gods who do speak to people. But the Stoic God governs all things in a materialistic, pantheistic way. In fact, they likened life to a river. Got this river, all of the water is rushing downstream. And there may be occasional eddies where the water is going in a different direction and they, they say it might look like that's free will, but it's not really free will because even those eddies eventually irresistibly get shot downstream. And so they were fatalists who never opposed or resisted life. They said it's, it's pointless to resist uh, life. And uh, what they said, their idea of meaning is to will valiantly to do virtue and virtue means to act consistently with nature. So... You will to go ahead and go downstream rather than trying fruitlessly to fight against it like those eddies do. And so they were, they were very fatal, uh, fatalistic in their view of life. And they said you can't get ruffled by life. You lose your relatives, don't get ruffled. You lose your finances, don't get ruffled. doesn't matter what happens to you. You need to stoically endure. That's where that phrase comes from. Everybody knows what stoically endure comes from, but that's, that's where it comes from. Now, against, against the backdrop 
of this fatalistic God of the Stoics and against the backdrop of the uninterested God of the Epicureans, Paul presents the beautiful personal God of the Scriptures. And so the existentialist school of philosophy does have some point, uh, some element of truth here. Uh, and I, I'm going to point out all of these approaches, the, the best portions of them, I think, are captured in presuppositional apologetics. Anyway, in doing this, Paul is appealing to something that is in every man, woman, and child, a desire for meaning, a desire for relationship. That's what he's appealing to. And I think it's brilliant what he's doing. He has not compromised one of his presuppositions at all, but he's succeeded in trashing several of the presuppositions of these Greeks. And in the process, he's appealed to something God has implanted within their being. Now, having established this beachhead... Paul relentlessly penetrates their defenses by reiterating his own presuppositions that he's been preaching about in the days before. And each of these phrases is like throwing a bombshell into, into the midst of this Areopagus. Uh, there is no common ground here. We're talking about presuppositionalism to the max. Okay, verse 24. <clears throat> God who made the world and everything in it. And so this God of which he speaks is the creator of all. And this speaks against the polytheism of the majority of the Greeks. The God that Paul speaks of made, you know, the, the stars and the mosquitoes. He made the mountains and the streams. He made the good-smelling flowers and the bad-smelling toads. Uh, one commentator said, In one opening sentence, Paul banished all the gods of Greece to oblivion and all their idols and images to the rubbish heap. And he did so without saying so. This is what's so brilliant about it. And so when I'm saying that he's, he's repeatedly throwing bombshells into their midst, I'm not saying he's being rude. No, he's so politely slicing and dicing them to pieces. Very polite. In fact, I think this is one of the things that gives him such a good hearing. He trusts the sovereignty of God to be able to capture and change people's hearts. He doesn't need to shove religion down people's throats. He presents the truth and he knows God's going to do it. And so he doesn't have to shout and rant and rave. And so he's able very graciously to present uh, the gospel message. Now, that first phrase stands in contrast to Stoic pantheism, which sees the material world and the indwelling power of that world as being coextensive and co-eternal. Like all evolutionists, they must believe that matter is eternal. Now, what Paul is saying here is matter had a beginning and God existed before that beginning. Paul is saying there is a vast creator-creature distinction. For any God to be able to create this cosmos, which is the, the word for world here, and I believe in this context it's including the whole universe, for any God to be able to make that, He has to be far greater than this universe. But more importantly, in His opposition to pantheism, He has to be different from this universe if He created uh, the universe. So Paul is stepping on some toes. He's doing it nicely. But the point is, he is constantly making an antithesis between truth and error. Unlike many of us modern evangelicals, he doesn't muddy the waters in order to maintain friendships with people. He's speaking truth, graciously, but truth. Now that first phrase also stands in contrast to another Greek philosophy known as dualism. Now these philosophers believe that Pond scum and hair and human bodies are just too icky for God to possibly have created. That's just nonsense to them. And so they think of God as just being so out there. He's not re really related. And there's all these emanations from God of different beings. And somewhere way, way lower than God, somehow the creation came out of maybe lower uh, creatures or emanations or gods. And they created the universe that we're trying to escape from because they didn't like our, their body. They wanted to escape from it. They didn't like uh, this universe. And what Paul is saying here is no way. This whole creation is the direct work of a creator God, and therefore the physical is good. It is insulting to God to say otherwise. And so there's yet another group whose toes have been stepped on. But it was also insulting to all monistic ideas that saw all reality as one. We're coming into a generation, by the way, where monism is becoming more and more prevalent. It's even coming into like the emergent church has been hugely affected by this Eastern monistic idea. And just to summarize, why is Genesis 1 and 2 so important? 
And why is Genesis 1 and 2 been resisted by Satan over and over right from the time that it was written? Because I believe this doctrine of creation is the biggest bombshell that you can throw into the midst of a humanistic culture. It is antithetical to the way in which moderns and even ancients uh, were able to think. And there are entire books written on the profound ramifications of creation uh, the doctrine of creations, I'll let you study that on your own. But I just want to give you a heads up. This is a profound, profoundly influential doctrine. So if you want to be an apologist, start studying six-day creationism. That'll give you a lot of ammo. Now, he's not just the creator, he's also the ruler overall. Verse 24 says, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Now, that is a phrase that shows both God's nearness to his creation, his control of life, as well as his exaltedness and his transcendence. Both are important. If he did not have providential control, if he was not near to his creation, how in the world could you say that he was ruling over his creation? So he's near, but he's also transcendent. Transcendence means he is independent of his creation. He doesn't need the creation. And both imminence, that's nearness, and transcendence, that's exaltedness, they need to be held together. They really belong together. Providence shows that creation is totally dependent on God. Transcendence shows God in no way is dependent upon or needful of creation. Well, that's a bombshell being thrown into the Areopagus. There were philosophers who emphasized God's transcendence, but He's so far removed uh, from creation, He's not related to us in any way. There were other philosophers who spoke of God's imminence. In fact, He's so near, He's in everything in this creation, but God gets swallowed up by the universe, is actually a part of the universe, and therefore irrelevant in that system as well. Now, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I was hoping, maybe it's not going to be successful, but I was hoping that a chart would be worth at least a hundred words. So if you take a look at those, um, uh, those graphics, those diagrams there, we're just going to walk through them. The first picture shows the Christian view. God is different from the creation, and yet He is related to this creation. He interacts with it. He governs it. He upholds it. The materialist view, that, ex that takes God out of the picture altogether. It's only a material universe. The pantheist view sees God as in everything and part of everything, and often they see God as being a rational force within all of a creation. But this denies a personal view of God for many reasons. He's not the creator of all things, uh, sees God as changing since everything else changes, as you know, uh, evil being a part of God. It denies the significance of our own personal existence because we are swallowed up in God as well. And so, uh, God is not a person who rules in the pantheistic system. The dualist believes that God and nature have existed side by side eternally. So, nature is just as eternal as God is, is what they would say. Evil is just as eternal as God is. And you have two ultimate sources. Sometimes they see them even as battling against, uh, 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 against each other. There's a conflict. But this denies that God is the creator of all. It also denies that God is the Lord over all. And it also denies the goodness of, of, of creation, but we won't get into that. And then finally, the deist view says that God created the universe, but that God really doesn't interact with it. It's sort of like winding up a clock and just forgetting about it. God kind of forgets about the universe. He's irrelevant to our day-by-day -day affairs. Now, Paul's view, as we're going to be seeing, is that God is transcendent and yet involved. He is awesome and yet He is personal. He is powerful and yet He is compassionate. He's holy and yet He's merciful. Okay. In short, compared to the gods of the Greeks, the God of Christianity is very attractive. Paul goes on to discuss the immensity and the spirituality of God. He said it does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now that's a slap against the whole temple worship, you know, all of these 30,000 altars and idols in this, <clears throat> in, this, um, in this city and all kinds of temples. Actually, one ancient author I quoted last week said, the whole city was one altar, you know, and the whole city was one temple. Now, Paul is not denying that God can dwell in temples, 
on his own initiative and that the temple in Jerusalem was his throne. He's not saying that. He's saying God is so vast that that the whole universe cannot contain him. But more importantly, God cannot be contained by, controlled by, manipulated by, influenced by our worship. I think that's the chief thing that he is uh, talking about. Finally, Paul speaks about the aseity, that's A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God in verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We don't worship God because he needs us. We worship God because we need him, right? And so the doctrine of aseity is unique to Christianity. In fact, I've been tempted toying with the idea of preaching on the aseity of God next week from this phrase and then maybe going on to chapter 18 after that, because it's a really important doctrine. It's a doctrine many people are not familiar with. But the uh, doctrine of aseity indicates that throughout eternity, God never had any needs. He's always been self-sufficient. And so evangelicals who say God created man because he was longing for fellowship do not understand the doctrine of God in the Scriptures. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had perfect joy, perfect fellowship, perfect contentment throughout eternity without any angels and without any humans. That's not the way God, uh, the, the way God functioned. He created all things not because He needed it, but because of the overflow of His heart, which leads Paul to speak of the generous work of God. Verse 25, "...since He gives to all life, breath, and all things." So He doesn't need anything. He gives everything. God is the life giver and the sustainer and the nourisher of all of life and all creatures, all men, and even this cosmos itself. Now, this means that the very breath that was being used by these philosophers to speak against Paul's God is a breath God gave to them, right? There's no way they could resist them unless God let them resist them, which means they are in, in God's hands. Uh, there is no way that their Greek gods control the life and the destiny of Greek and the flow flow of uh, history, Greek history, God does. So the altar of the unknown God would remind them of the fact their gods were not able to deliver them, control anything that was happening during that plague. Only this unknown God could. It was God who governs them and Athens. Paul then describes God's sovereign purpose in all of this in verse 27 so that they should seek the Lord. There's a moral imperative here. Men owe their allegiance to God. They should seek the Lord. They they were created to worship Him, not the idols who were around them. And so the Epicureans were wrong in saying, you know, God's uninterested in us. He's so far removed, it really doesn't matter. Uh, Paul goes on to say, in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Now, if He's not far from each one of us, why is He an unknown God? Well, it's not because God is unknowable. It's because of their moral blindness. And the word for, for grope there in the Greek indicates that blindness that is, that is in them. It indicates, in the Greek, it's a very negative connotation. It's a moral blindness. For example... In Homer, the blind giant Cyclops gropes, that's the word that's used, gropes around trying to find Odysseus so that he can kill him. In the Old Testament uh, translation, the Greek translation, uh, the same word is used to indicate a moral blindness for which people are blameworthy. And so what Paul is doing is he's setting up yet another punchline to show these people they know the truth. They know the truth, but they have been suppressing this truth because they don't want God. That's why they've been doing Their unbelief is not because there's lack of facts, lack of evidence. Theirs is a willful unbelief in the face of mountains of evidence that is all around us that speaks to this great Creator God. And then comes the two quotes from the pagans to prove that they had the evidence. The phrase, for in Him we live and move and have our being, is a direct quote from Epimenides, Stoic philosopher, poet, and their hero, the second quote comes from Aratus, for we are his offspring. Now, Paul, this, this is important. Paul was not quoting them because he thinks they're such great authorities and that we ought to be studying these Greek philosophers. There's so much truth that we can learn from these Greek philosophers. If you look up the context, just, just a little um, verse from which those are pulled, you will see horrible paganism in both of the poems that he is quoting. 
There is no way Paul is supporting what's going on in that, in that um, uh, phrase uh, there. Uh, it is, it, it, it's uh, really an ungodly uh, theology. McGregor says, the quotes are rather cleverly used. Because he quotes a verse sounding polytheistic from a pantheist, the Stoic Aratus, and a verse sounding pantheistic from a polytheist, Epimenides, in order to confute both parties. Paul was very capable of playing one part of a hostile audience against another, as we observe in Acts 23. He may be quoting poets rather than philosophers because the poets were better known. As it is in our own day, the artists and poets mediated the ideas of the philosophers to the popular audience. But it is clear to me, he is not agreeing with the theology, with the philosophy of those Greeks, and I think it is scandalous when systematic theology start with natural theology and they go to the Greek philosophers and say, yeah, maybe even some of them were, were, were Christians, you know, maybe that some of them were saved through their uh, looking at nature. No way, no way. He's arguing presuppositionally. And so this sets Paul up to drive home the absurdity of their philosophy and call them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, he does this in three steps. First, in verse 29, he looks to the past. He shows how Greek philosophy and practice have been utterly inconsistent. He's demonstrated that and why they need to repent. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, and we can agree to that phrase there, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think and I might parenthetically add there, as those philosophers thought, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. See, these, these guys, they knew their philosophy. They know exactly what Paul is doing. And uh, they're feeling helpless before it. After the long treatment of what this unknown God is like, it is utterly consistent to have any idolatry whatsoever, even if it is allegorized, and even within the system of Epimenides and Aratus, it is utterly inconsistent with their viewpoints. And furthermore, so he's showing the inconsistency of their practice. Furthermore, they're making God in their own image, starting with man. If you start with man, you always end up worshiping something that's less than man. And so this critique is very much like Romans chapter 1. They know idolatry is wrong. They even said idolatry is wrong, and yet they are idolaters. You see what Paul is doing there? Now, in relation to the present, that was the past, verse 30, the present, Paul calls them to repentance. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, he's pretty bold in calling them ignorant, um, and yet he's demonstrated their ignorance, and they've admitted to their ignorance with this altar to the unknown God. I hope by now you can see there is no way Paul is standing on neutral ground. Paul is standing as the representative of the one true God who was offended by their idolatry and their false philosophy. Their ignorance, which would have been an offensive term in the highest to these philosophers, their ignorance is not an excusable ignorance. We can excuse a two-year-old for not knowing geometry, right? Very excusable ignorance. But this ignorance is not excusable because it's a moral lapse. They know better. They're suppressing the truth. And therefore, he points to the future in verse 31 and speaks of an or else. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, Greek theology had no theology of uh, future judgment. Many of them did not have a belief in life after death. Some did. Uh, but this, too, would have been a bombshell. We are accountable to God for our actions. He was helping them to think about the future. Now, many people don't want to think about life after death. That's part of apologetics. Get them to think about life after death because that's a vulnerable point at which uh, you can get them. And then Christ's resurrection guarantees the reality of this uh, judgment. Verse 31 again, "...because He has appointed a day..." in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ's resurrection is the proof that our resurrection can happen. And Paul indicates Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection to judgment. Now, some Greeks believed in life after death. None of them believed in a resurrection. But this statement goes way beyond any life after death 
theology or belief that they might have. The essence of Christianity is that Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death, and it no longer holds terrors for the Christian. That's the thing that uh, we can be confident of. So you can see why I'm pretty excited about Paul's uh, sermon. He starts with a commitment to Scripture. He continues with a commitment to the scriptural presuppositions. He ends with a commitment to that, and he calls them to embrace the gospel. Well, finally, they have something they can disagree with without getting themselves into trouble with the Areopagus. Verse 32 says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. None of them believed in the, in the resurrection. The Epicureans didn't even believe in life after death. Now, up to this argument, they've really not been able to wrestle with Paul because if they do, it's going to show the inconsistency of their worldview. And if there's one thing those Greek philosophers hated... It was inconsistency. They didn't want to be shown to be inconsistent. So now that they can get past their own problems, they can begin to mock a doctrine that is universally disbelieved in Athens, the resurrection of the body. Now, I I should point out, mocking is a sure sign the person doesn't have a good argument. Okay? These guys, if they had a good argument against what Paul was saying, you can bet your boots that they would have been bringing intellectual arguments against Paul. And so it's very significant that they don't. They just mock. And that mocking is an indicator par excellence that their philosophy was bankrupt. Others procrastinated. The last clause in verse 32 says, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Now, that's a second strategy. When people don't want to deal with the issues in the Bible, they just put it off. You know, they will procrastinate. Now, maybe some of these people really were interested in finding out more, but based on Paul's reaction, I doubt it very much. Verse 33 says, So Paul departed from among them. He never again talked to Athens. And uh, in uh, chapter 18, he goes on to Corinth. And so it may be some of these people never had an opportunity to hear the gospel again in their lives. Procrastination has led many people on the road to hell. It's led many people on the road to hell. Hebrews says, today, if you will hear His voice, now is the day of salvation. And if there are some of you who are putting off, putting off a decision to embrace Jesus Christ, now is the day. Procrastination uh, may jeopardize your soul. The third group clung to Paul and believed. Verse 34 says, However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, Dionysius was a part of the Areopagus Council, which was a very prestigious, very intellectual group of people. He probably jeopardized his standing of being on there by becoming a Christian. But he was so gripped by the power of Paul's arguments, so gripped by the power of the gospel, that he was changed. And so apologetics can reach intellectuals. Uh, Apologetics and the gospel can reach influential people like this lady, Damaris. This small group of believers stepped into a whole new world, embraced a whole new worldview, and it was because Paul was willing to not only preach the gospel, but to challenge with every argument to challenge their arguments against the gospel. We call that apologetics. And apologetics is something I urge you to study and to teach to your children. Now, we aren't Paul. We could probably never pull off a stunt like that. I know I couldn't. (laughs) You know, we're not him. But I think there is a lot that we can imitate from Paul's discourse. I'm not going to highlight everything, but let me end with seven lessons. First, it's important that we never be neutral. Christ said, He who is not with me is against me. We must always challenge the independence, whether it's independent thinking, independent acting, we must always challenge the independence of others. And when they reject our dependence as nonsense, what we can do is show them, if you're not dependent upon God, you cannot make sense out of life. It's called the transcendental argument. Presuppositionalism shows you how to do that, and I would encourage you to check out um, Greg Bonson's apologetic lectures. He's got two different sets of lectures on that that are fabulous. Uh, Books by John Frame, Richard Pratt, Van Til, other presuppositionalists, and I've already mentioned, read from some of the other schools as well. For example, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, it comes from the Evidentialist School of Apologetics, but they've got some fabulous material you can use within presuppositionalism. And so you can read... 
Sproul, Gershner, Schaefer, there's a lot of others that are out there. If you're grounded, that's a big if, <laughs> if you're grounded in presuppositionalism, you can benefit with the others without compromising principle. Second, realize that the heart of the problem with unbelief is not insufficient evidence. That's important. It's not insufficient evidence. It never has been. Men have plenty of evidence to know that God exists. The problem is an ethical problem. It's the problem of the heart. And so Scripture portrays unbelief as being willful unbelief. Men know that God exists. They know that they're doing evil. They suppress that knowledge according to Romans 1 and 2. Presuppositionalism is the methodology that most aggressively demonstrates that it's a willful unbelief against the evidence. Third, be confident that the further from God any person may be, the more holes and inconsistencies you're going to find in their argument. If God is truth and you're further and further away, you're going to have more gaps than the truth that you have, right? You're going to have more holes and inconsistencies. And presuppositionalism helps you to find those holes, those inconsistencies very quickly. Even if you're in, sitting in a university class, you can say, okay, yeah, I can see... That's a true statement, but this is a majorly messed up one. You can see through the arguments. But the other there's other approaches as well. Rationalist, evidentialist, and combinationalist approaches to apologetics uh, also. That's one of their fortes, is showing inconsistencies. The fourth lesson is that we need to know our own presuppositions, and most people don't. They never examine their presuppositions, which means you're beginning with ignorance. You begin with ignorance. You don't know if your presuppositions are coming from the Scripture, whether they're coming from a bad philosophy, from your culture, from your upbringing, or whatever. And if you're starting with ignorance, you don't know. See, one, one, one scholar said, our presuppositions are like absolutes. They frame the way that we think. And if your presuppositions are not coming from the revelation of God, that means that they automatically become epistemological gods which demand to be obeyed. I won't explain it. We've already taken too long. We must know our assumptions, though, if we're going to be effective in dialoguing with others, even if we're to be faithful to God. We've got to examine them. Next lesson is that we can be effective in dialoguing with others if we humble the pride of man by taking away their arguments. In fact, that's one of the purposes of predestination. It's to humble the pride of man. Paul did not convert everybody, but he disarmed everybody. Okay? He didn't convert everybody, but disarmed them. And even young people can be shown how to do this very easily with presuppositional apologetics. The sixth lesson is that we don't need to argue common ground. This is a common tactic of apologetics. It's really unnecessary. Because, because others are made in the image of God, we already know they have common ground, even though they claim that they don't have common ground. Let me just illustrate that. There are a lot of people who say that there is no such thing as an absolute ethics. But we know God's law is written on their heart. And so... We're, we know there's going to be inconsistency with their views. When somebody steals from them or rapes their daughter or lies about them in court or sins against them in, in some way, they're going to become morally outraged and yet they have no philosophical basis for that. You can point out, on your worldview, you have no grounds for being morally outraged. Now, I agree with you. This is a horrible thing. You should be morally outraged, but it's only because of God's law. And the reason you're morally outraged and I'm morally outraged is because God's law is written on your heart. You cannot escape from logic. You cannot escape from ethics. You cannot escape from a, a world of cause and effect. Well, let's look at that as an example. There are um, some philosophers who believe in total chance. And um, yet we know God has imprint, imprinted into their very being a sense of cause and effect, effect a, a sense of law and order, because they've been made in the image of God. And so Francis Schaeffer took advantage of this. He was looking for those things in their lives. And so uh, he points out the inconsistency in the philosopher John Milton Cage, who believed in total uh, chance. He not only a philosopher, but he was a musician. Some of his music is absolutely crazy, uh, you know, picking out notes randomly and just sticking them all together and just a totally chance thing. And it sounds that way, too. It sounds awful. But um, he was also an avid mushroom collector, okay? 
Now, when collecting mushrooms, he did not act consistently with his worldview of chance because he always knew this color of a, of a mushroom is poisonous. I'm never going to eat that one. And this one, that's always non-poisonous, which means he did not treat these as being random events, chance events. He looked at this creation as having a creation of law and order. And you point out that inconsistency it can be like Nathan pointing his finger to David and all of a sudden they realize, whoa, I really do not believe in a world of total chance. Presuppositionalism capitalizes on it. There are hundreds and hundreds of those inconsistencies in pagans' worldview and presuppositionalism shows you how to see that. Romans 1 and 2 indicates that man not only has the law placed on their hearts, they have a knowledge of the law. They seek to suppress that law. We can bank on their knowledge of God's existence very, very well. Paul did it. Presuppositional apologetics can show you how to do so as well. And again, I strongly urge you, make presuppositional apologetics part of the core curriculum of your kids' education. The last point that I want to make is that God provides the answers to the chief questions of philosophy. Now, there's many ways we could do this, and Rushdoony and many other people show this. For example, the Trinity has answered the age-long problem in philosophy that they've never been able to figure out on the divide between the one and the many. You can read about that. He's got a whole book on that subject. But let me just end with four examples. Epistemology is the study of how we know that we know. Okay? Unless you start with the mind of God, as it is revealed in the Bible, you will have a hard time justifying this question. But... If the God who knows all things has revealed a part of that knowledge in the Bible, uh, then we can truly know it even if we are not omniscient. Okay? It takes omniscience to make any kind of axioms, any universal negatives, any universal positive. It takes omniscience. You couldn't make it unless you were everywhere in the universe. You knew all things. How could you possibly uh, rule out all things or always say it's always this way? And yet you have to have these universals for epistemology. The Bible alone can provide such a basis. Ontology is the study of being or existence. And I'm not going to go into all the debates that circle around that discipline. But if the God who created all things revealed himself, then God becomes the starting point for understanding being. Now, the Greeks really wrestled with this. We need not. There's only two levels of existence, God and everything that God created. Ethics is the study of right and wrong. Socrates assumed that good, the standard of good, was something that was independent of God, outside of God, but this leads to a problem. Just because it's out there, how do you know it's good? You know, why do we call it good just because we think it's good? Uh, why would it be outside of, of God? And just because it is there, how do you get ought from is? You know, Russell, atheist that he was, demonstrated it's impossible to go from is to ought. God is not subject to law as if it is something that is outside of himself. God is the law, God is good, and God's attributes must be the basis for any study of ethics. We can't go beyond the Bible. We cannot go beyond the Bible and ethics. And finally, teleology deals with the causes, purpose, and goal of life in history. Now, we can't study those things scientifically, it's all speculation. Unless the God who made all things and governs all things has revealed His purposes and His goals. And of course, He has in the Bible. And He says, the cross of Christ is at the very heart of this teleology. And the end, the goal, that's the purpose. The goal is judgment day and the new heavens and the new earth uh, that go beyond that. Now, whether you're an intellectual or not, and this sermon has been a tough one because I really do want to bring out some of the ways in which the Scriptures are useful in dealing with intellectuals. Whether you're an intellectual or not, everybody has a common problem. And the common problem is they're running from the light and paradoxically, they need the light in order to be able to run from the light. They have to borrow from Christianity before they can resist Christianity. And uh, it's like the runaway boy that McGregor Wright talks about. The boy was running away from his parents, and uh, he, his parents owned the lighthouse. And he gets into a boat, and as he's rowing away from the boat in the middle of the night, he can't see where he's going. He can't see a thing. 
The only way he can tell where he is going is if he constantly looks back at the lighthouse to make sure he's rowing away from that lighthouse, okay? So he has to borrow the light in order to be able to resist this light that he hates so much. Well, in the same way, fallen man will show all kinds of examples of looking at the light of God while opposing the God who lights his way. And it is our job to call the prodigals back to the light and tell them, without it, you are hopelessly lost forever in a vast sea without anything that you're going to be able to see. You need God's light. May God make us effective in apologetics. Amen. Father, thank you for your word, that it is a word not just to uh, common people, even though there are very few wise and noble and mighty that you have called, and yet your word is sufficient to crumble every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of you, every fortress that has been raised up by philosophers and others. We pray that you would help our children to grow up able to handle your word, able to uh, see through the philosophies of the pagans, and able to give an answer of the hope that lies within them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.